welcome to the Pinups and Poltergeist podcast. I'm your host, Ruby Stardust, and today's episode is going to be super fun and interesting. I'm going to start with our pinup topic, and I'm going to talk about pinup pageants and contests. This is something I know um, a lot of people in that world have been want to know about if you haven't already gotten into it. So I'm going to talk about a pageant I was just in last week. Uh, it'll technically be two weeks by the time this episode comes out, but I'm going to share with you guys how that event went, some of my experiences and what I've learned along the way, and some resources. So that'll be really fun. And then I will get into the myth, legend, slash sleepover game of Bloody Mary. And this is really fascinating. We're going to talk about some of the potential origins and history uh, of that spooktacular game that we all scared ourselves with as kids. And then I'm going to do my movie review. So this time I'm reviewing 1992's Candyman. And the reason I want to do this now is to get us ready for the new Candyman sequel that's coming out next month in August. So really fun and exciting. And before we move on, I want to give you guys my usual little disclaimer. This podcast is intended for mature audiences, so there can it can be a little graphic at times. You know, we're talking about uh, ghost stories and horror movies, so it, it can get a little gross here and there. But I'm sure that won't scare you off if it's if you're into horror movies. <laughs> and there may be some adult language because, well, I'm me, and uh, Friday is only my second favorite F word. So, <laughs> listener discretion is advised. All right, so pinup pageants, pinup contests, I think that's used interchangeably, but yeah, that's our topic for today. Now, I'm going to start by saying I'm no expert, but I've been in a few. Uh, uh, pinup contests and pageants by now and um, I actually recently was in one um, just a week ago so I thought it'd be fun to talk about how that went talk about pageant experience um, that I've had as well as some tips and tricks I've learned along the way and some of the resources that I found so um, last weekend I went to the Alley Cats uh, car club they hosted a car show and pinup pageant. It was Night of the Revving Dead car show and tiki pinup pageant. You guys, I saw as soon as I saw the flyer, I knew I had to be in it. I mean, Night of the Revving Dead, obviously tribute to Night of the Living Dead and Tiki. You know, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with all things Tiki. So yeah, this was like my jam hundred percent. I knew these these were my people, so <laughs> I signed up immediately um, months back, it, like as soon as I saw it. And so I've spent the entire, pretty much the entire, uh, I think it was three months preparing for this. So, you know, um, and this is one of my tips actually that I'll talk about later is is being prepared and starting early. So on to the event though. Um, it was on a Saturday, which was great, but it was very hot. It was in uh, Rio Linda, which is in, in Sacramento County. And um my family, fortunately, my parents came with me. My husband came with me, and it was really nice. And my my club, NorCal Pinup Girls, was there, so it was great to have like my little tribe of supporters because this is not my turf um, normally. So you know, it's always good to have people that are support you. 
So we pulled in, uh, the event started at three and we got there at four. And when we pulled into the parking lot, the car read 113 degrees. Yes, 113 degrees. So that's pretty hot. Um, And given the temperature, I was thinking maybe that turnout wouldn't be so good, but it was actually, I think people were just hungry for car shows. You know, um, with the pandemic, there wasn't much going on. So I think people were just going, you know, hell or high water, they were going to be there. But it was great. Um, and everybody had a really good time. You know, um, there were tons of really gorgeous cars. I saw my favorite was it was like a a vintage hearse. It was a Pontiac hearse, I believe. And they had done this lace overlay painting design on the roof, but it was on in like almost like a iridescent 3D red. So it wasn't just like a pattern painted on. It had this like 3D effect. It's hard to explain, but it was probably one of the coolest things I've seen. Um, and I got to do a photo shoot with that car. So I did three photo shoots that day, which may in hindsight have been a bit much because um, it take, kind of takes it out of you. So I didn't really have time to rest before the um, contest. So the contest was at seven, which um, it was a tiki theme. <laughs> Oh, you guys, I had so much fun getting ready for this. It was great. So it was a Tiki theme contest, and we did get our um, a list of questions ahead of time that they might ask. So if you guys are getting into pinup contests, I would say that's one thing to check with um, if you want to make sure you get your questions ahead of time, because it really does help is before you sign up, just ask the organizers if they're going to give you the questions ahead of time. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So um If that's something you feel would make a big difference, which it could, you know, uh, it it would help to be able to prepare. But I think sometimes, too, they don't tell you because they want you to be able to think on your feet. And so I think there's probably pluses and minuses to either one in terms of of judging. But um, in this case, they gave us the questions. So I was nice and prepared with that. So by the time, you know, we we get out there and we're ready, um, there were 14 girls and I was contestant number four. So each of us had to, to get up there and sort of give our bio and answer the question which one of the judges would ask. And then there was an optional talent portion and most girls did it. So, of course, for me, um, I played my ukulele and sing because, hello, it's a tiki pinup contest. <laughs> it would have been, oh, it would have been a shame not to, I think. So, yeah, I... Um, I really had a blast. I felt really good about how I did. I do think, again, um, you know, trying to learn. It's important to me to learn from every every experience and everything that I try. So I probably could have done better on my bio, I think. Um, I definitely left some stuff out. Uh, I think maybe the heat had gotten to me and the lack of rest. <laughs> but um, I think I did great with the question. The question I got was, what was your favorite era, 40s, 50s, or 60s, and why? Um I'll just tell you my answer. For me, it's kind of like late 50s, early 60s. I think a lot of what I like comes from that era in terms of, you know, clothing, silhouettes, um, vehicles. You know, my favorite, anybody who knows me <laughs> knows 59 Cadillac Coupe DeVille convertible is my dream car. So that's right in the middle there. And of course, in terms of Tiki, like that was Tiki Pete peak tiki (laughs) see that five times fast peak tiki um in terms of when you know the influence was there in terms of you know tiki not just tiki bars restaurants but the influence in like hotels and restaurants oh i just said restaurants sorry hotels um and even like apartment buildings and and it, it was just sort of huge influence at that time a lot of our um you know the polynesian pop designs that we love so much came from that era so anyhow that was my answer and um there were, yeah, there were a lot of really talented gals. There was people who danced, people who, there was a gal who baked. Um, 
this cake that she gave to the judges that looked really delicious <laughs> that I did not get to try. So um, yeah, ultimately, when it came down to it, I almost took third place. So there was a tie between myself and the pinup Senorita Adelita, who is a, a friend of mine. We actually, I met her when we did the NorCal pinups um, cruise cruising north pinup contest last October and um that one I won and she took second place so um I think it'll be interesting moving forward when we continue to be in contests together to see if we continue to rank closely but I just love her she's so sweet and fun and she's she herself is very um a perfect pinup so you know it came down to audience applause at the end and it was very close we actually had to go back and forth a few times but I think she just had more people there um and ultimately, it's like the, the point is to have fun. And that is kind of one of my tips, you guys, if you're going to do this, don't walk in there being competitive and catty. This isn't, you know, Miss America. It's <laughs> the point is to make friends and learn and develop your, you know, be part of a community really and have fun. And that's, you know, and that's really the point. And it's cool because it challenges you as, as a pinup. It challenges you to bring forth your best and get creative, you know, and, and work in a theme. And I think it can only help you. So what I learned, I think I mentioned earlier, is to practice. Like, uh, I, I have pra I practiced everything, but I could have done more. You know, my bio maybe should have been a little more practiced. And I will tell you guys, um, there's a great video. There's a couple of good videos, and I'll list them all at the end. But Sherry Dollface talks about this is, you know, when, when she's been a judge many times, and they want to get to know you and all the things about you that make you, you know, a great person. And if you do any charity work, make sure to include that, you know, um, all your big accomplishments. Don't be shy. I think that's something I struggle with um, is that false modesty of like, oh, you can't talk too much about all the good things you've done. But you know what? That's that's crap. <laughs> we should all be able to be proud of our accomplishments and talk about them. And you don't have to rub in people's face. But shoot, if you're in a contest and they're asking, you know, go to town. Don't hold back. <laughs> and um, like I said earlier, if they provide the questions, make sure you practice. You come up with answers for whatever they're their list is and you practice that ahead of time I think that the judges are going to know if you got the questions and if you are not prepared that's really um, probably going to count against you and I recommend with all of this um, record yourself you know just pull out your phone and record yourself talking and you may see again this was a tip a tip from Cherry Dollface in her video is you might realize you have certain gestures or facial movements that you make that you don't like. Um, there's no right or wrong, by the way. It's just about what you want to put forth. So it's a good way to see what you're doing and, and um, you know, make sure when you get up there, it's all exactly the way you want it. So my other advice is to really plan out your look from head to toe. It has to be really professional and put together. So, you know, it, they are going to look for details. So for example, with my costume, I had um, a really beautiful three-piece playsuit set made by Turning Heads by Carolina. She's out of um, Australia. Highly recommend her. You can check out her Etsy store. But I had an outfit made from her, and I made my own hair flowers. So I actually took this outfit into Michael's, and I was, like, looking for flowers that matched uh, my outfit. And as I put them together, I also had this really cool um, kind of little skull uh bone looking necklace that I got from uh, Creepsville 666 and they had a matching bracelet so I actually bought two bracelets and one of them I broke apart and used the skull beads in the hair flower so we kind of had this continuity of my hair flower and my necklace my bracelet all had these little like matching skulls and my hair flowers matched my dress and my shoes you know I made sure to get shoes that matched I got um 
Lucky Lou shoes, I, I splurged. <laughs> I had been following them for a long time, and I finally splurged on those. They're like um, carved heel shoes. And so, I mean, I put a lot of time and thought into my look. And, of course, my makeup is something I practice frequently, makeup and hair. So, and if if it's not something you're good at, it's okay. Um, you know, if you sign up early, you'll have time to practice. And maybe you just make that your go-to hairdo for a few months. Um, when you go out, you practice the same hairdo that you're going to have at the pinup contest. So, you know, if you're not one of those people that has a lot of time. So, yeah, and ultimately, like I said earlier, my best advice to you is have fun. Make friends. Don't be catty. Uh, this this really is an opportunity for growth and 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 meeting people and, and growing your little, you know, pinup retro community. And it really, uh, that's been my experience so far. And I'm sure there are some where it can be, like really competitive and nasty, but I haven't. And I, from what I've seen, it's, that's kind of not the goal. So, um, in terms of resources, I would say I watched a lot of pinup contests on YouTube. Go to, if there's any locally, um, go to them and check them out and see what they're like. Uh, and if there's any that you're interested in, see if you can find videos of them or anybody talking about them, or even hit up if you know someone who's been in that pinup contest, ask them how it went, if they have any advice for you. Don't be afraid to reach out because it's all about community. So, Watching pinup contests on YouTube. Um, again, Cherry Dollface has a great video on that because she's been a judge. Uh, the Miss Lady Lace Glamour channel on YouTube, she has a whole series on pinup contests. And she is uh, probably as gorgeous and perfect as you can get. So <laughs> her advice, I would take it. Yeah. So that is my pinup uh, section here pinup contest. So yeah, if you guys have anything to add, if you have any experience or any questions or comments about it, um, please feel free to reach out. You can you can um, write me, uh, pinupsandpoltergeist at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. You can always DM me there. So that is that. Now moving on to Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. <laughs> Did I scare you? I think I kind of scared myself, actually. <laughs> that was really fun, though. So, yeah, Bloody Mary. We're not talking about the cocktail here, people, although that is one of my favorites, and I wouldn't be opposed to having a cocktail talk section of this podcast. So, <laughs> if you like that idea, let me know. Maybe I can work it in somehow. I always love a good cocktail. So, no, today we're talking about the game, the sleepover game you might have played as a kid um, where you stand in front of a mirror in the dark bathroom. You might have a candle or like a flashlight and um, you and your friends basically scare the crap out of yourselves by repeating Bloody Mary in the mirror, knowing that something bad is supposed to happen. Um, you know, as I recall, I don't even remember what we thought was going to happen. I just remember doing it and screaming and you know, all those things that adolescent girls do so well. Um, <laughs> but it raises the question, you know, uh, where did this come from, right? I mean, have you ever wondered about this, like where the myth came from, the, the, this sort of ritualistic game that we played as kids? And, and why is it like Bloody Mary? Why not Bloody Betty or something like that? Um, and why, why chant it in a mirror? You know, what's and what is supposed to happen? I mean... I think depending on who you ask, all kinds of different things, but I decided to dig in a little bit and 
try just try to find out more about the history of this. So um, what I found is there's not any real, you know, as with most myths, it's all speculation, but people have researched this. And from what they found, there's kind of a, a few potential um, actual historical women who could sort of be the basis for what became this game. So the the three that um, kind of came up the most were Mary the First of England, um, who who was known as Bloody Mary, and we'll get into her a little bit more later. There's also Mary Worth, who was a supposed witch who was executed during the Salem witch trials, and some also link this legend to Elizabeth Bathory, which of course <laughs> would make sense since she's notorious for you know murdering young girls and bathing in their blood. So you know um, very bloody, but her name wasn't Mary, so I'm not sure why. Some people think maybe that kind of got like glommed into the myth of of Bloody Mary of of England. So. Anyhow, I thought, you know, from, from what I could find, it seemed like the most likely contender was Mary I of England. Um, so we're going to talk about her a little bit and then go into how it became what it is today. So she was the daughter of King Henry VIII. Oh, I hope I get that right. <laughs> My notes say seven, but I'm pretty sure he was the eighth. So he was notorious. Right? He was the one who he wanted to get divorced. He was married to Catherine of Aragon from Spain. And uh, he really, really wanted a male heir. He was very stuck on that. And at the time, the Catholic Church forbade divorce. But uh, after years of marriage, they had only their daughter, Mary, and you know, he wanted a son. So he wanted to divorce her so he could keep trying with someone else. And um, the church wouldn't allow it. So he forced the church to convert to pro- the church, sorry, the country to convert to Protestantism, which a lot of people didn't like. Catherine and her daughter Mary were staunch Catholics, so they definitely didn't like that. Um, and Mary always felt like this was just an affront to God and and to her her sort of rights as well. So, you know, when this happened, the king married Anne Boleyn, which uh, again, you guys, I'm sure most of you are at least familiar with this story, but um, there's there's a lot of history on this. There's been a lot of movies and shows and you whatnot. Uh, <laughs> but basically, let's try to sum it up in a nutshell. King banished Catherine and pretty much harassed Mary. He wanted her to recognize his new wife as legitimate and the children as legitimate, and she wouldn't do that. And of course, divisions within the royal family kind of echo throughout the country, and he didn't like that. But she was, her beliefs were very strict and she did, she refused to. So she was kind of always harassed by that. And I can imagine, you know, divorce is always hard on kids, but being harassed by your, and threatened by your father <laughs> to acknowledge your stepmom might be a little, might be a little rough. I don't know. So anyhow, um, on top of all of this, as she grew up, Mary suffered from what many now believe to be severe undiagnosed endometriosis. Obviously, they didn't know about it back then, and um, frankly, they don't know a lot about it now. And I know this because I have endometriosis that went undiagnosed for many years, and I had pretty obvious symptoms, except a lot of medical professionals, they just still don't know a lot about it, and there's not a lot of research. So anyway, not to get off topic, but I, I happen to know it causes a lot of pain. So she had severe pain. Um, frequently and a lot of health problems that resulted from it. And so I can only imagine between dealing with this um, where she couldn't get any relief or diagnosis and then all this family strife was really difficult and records indicate that she had severe anxiety and depression. Again, no surprise there. 
So, you know, in Mary's eyes, she was the first and only heir in line for the throne uh, because for Catholic beliefs, she saw his subsequent two marriages as being illegitimate. However, when Henry died, the crown went to the son he had with his third wife. Um, the son was Edward VI, and when he took the throne, Edward was nine. Yeah, you heard that right. He was nine years old. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, can you imagine putting a nine-year-old in charge of much of anything, let alone an entire country. Uh, yeah, it seems really inappropriate, but I have to say, you know, the behavior of British royalty has always perplexed me. <laughs> I just don't get a lot of what they do. But anyway, uh, he was not on the throne for terribly long. He passed away at 16, which is sad. Um, you know, it's, that's very young. And for Mary, this allowed her to finally take the throne. That was her opening. Now, you would think, okay, she finally got what she wanted. She could have a happy ending. But by this time, she was seemed to be very bitter and angry and traumatized and just twisted. So she went in and just made things worse. She was very determined to return England to, like, this staunch Catholicism and just crush any Protestants that opposed her. So that led to her having over 280 Protestants burned at the stake, in which it caused her to earn the nickname Bloody Mary, uh, you know, um, Interestingly enough, somebody pointed out, you know, it's a lot more people died at the hands of other monarchs throughout the history of Europe, but she, she got that nickname. Anyway, <laughs> moving on, um, the question comes up, okay, so how is her story and her life connected to this game? You know, what's, what, how did, how did that happen? So researchers have sort of linked it to this age-old practice of divining, right? Mirrors have long been considered portals to the spirit realm um, you know, throughout history, and early versions of this mirror witch game that's been around for a long time was where maidens would perform this ritual in the mirror at, with the goal to see their future husband. So it may not have been Bloody Mary. It could have been some other mirror witch. And over time, it sort of took a more sinister turn somehow, and people would summon Bloody Mary, and, and it, there would be something like tragic or some harm would come to you. And so... You know, why? <laughs> You're probably listening to this. And, and so why do, do kids want to do this when they're, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 years old? Like it's, it's a common adolescent game. And why would they want to do this ritual? Well, the ages of 9 to 12 are labeled the Robinson age by psychologists. So it's actually a period of time when children need to explore their desire for a touch, for excitement, sorry, by doing sort of creepy ritual games and playing in the dark. It's just kind of something it makes. It's like a safe even though it feels scary and dangerous, it's a safe way to explore, you know, your fears and release those sort of anxieties um, of that age. So this also, this age range, 9 to 12, happens to be the age where girls, you know, are on the cusp of menstruation. And some people think the game Bloody Mary is linked to sort of the fears and anxieties around this life transition, wherein participants are sort of confronting their own fears of pending adulthoods and the literal sort of bloody mess that comes with it. And so it's almost as if facing Bloody Mary is sort of facing your fear of what happens as you transition into adulthood. So for me, I have to say that in reading this, I realized that adolescence, you know, it sucked. <laughs> for me, it was no walk in the park. And as I'm reading this and, and learning about it, I can see how these spooky games and rituals sort of served as like a pressure relief valve for all those sort of pent up fears and anxieties that were driven by hormones and social pressure and, you know, just your changing body. So, yeah, I 
I, I definitely related and I, and I found this really interesting and I'm curious if you guys had any experiences like did you play this game when you were young how did it go you know um, again the expectations I know they're vastly different some places I read they said you have to say Bloody Mary three times others said you know you got to say it 13 times some people expected the mirror to turn bloody others you know she would reach her hand out and try to grab you and take you away or whatever but um yeah, so it depends on, I guess, where you were. But if you had any experiences, anything creepy or hilarious, I'd love to hear about it. You can share it with me. I'll share it on the podcast if you like. So you can always message me on Instagram, Facebook. It's at the Ruby Stardust. Um, well, Instagram is at the underscore Ruby underscore Stardust. Facebook is Ruby Stardust. And, of course, you can email me, pinupsandpoltergeist at gmail.com. So, yeah share with me your stories, your spooky stories. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about the subject, um, I can highly recommend some of the resources I pulled from. So uh, the infographic show on YouTube has a great episode on Bloody Mary. And Snopes, actually, their fact check is a Bloody Mary story true is actually really, really good. And paranormal.lovetoknow.com has a really interesting story called The Origin of the Bloody Mary Legend, Who is this Spirit? So yeah, a little something if you want to dig into it more. But now that we've covered one bloody legend, let's move on to another and do our movie review of Candyman. They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? All right, so Candyman, this movie came out in 1992 and I actually saw it originally at theaters uh, when I was an adolescent teen and it scared the crap out of me <laughs> at the time and, and so I decided to actually review it now because there is a new Candyman sequel coming out next month in August it's produced and written by Oscar winner Jordan Peele and I love his work uh, Get Out was great movie um, the new Twilight Zone that he did I'm, I'm an old school like Twilight Zone was a childhood staple for me, and so I loved his treatment of the series. I thought it was great, and so I'm really looking forward to this film, and I thought, hey, we need to catch, up, catch back up with um, the original. So it was uh, directed by Bernard Rose, the first Candyman, and it's a supernatural horror movie based on Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden. So Candyman follows a Chicago grad student named Helen Lyle, who's played by Virginia Madsen, and she's doing a thesis on urban legends and folklore. So she stumbles upon the myth of Candyman. And Candyman is played by Tony Todd amazingly well. So she makes the fatal mistake of summoning this murderous ghost with a hook for a hand. And obviously, bloodiness ensues. So we can see a parallel in this story with the Bloody Mary myth that I just talked about. Because in Candyman, he's summoned by standing in front of the mirror and saying his name five times. So again, the number of times is different, but it's, it's again, it's similar to this mirror, which sort of ritual legend. And uh, according to the Candyman legend, you say his name five times and he'll appear behind you breathing down your neck. So again, it's, it's, it's a case of us seeing, you know, this real life legend and ritual sort of influencing uh, a little bit this you know, movie, this, this media. So that is where the parallels end. <laughs> Other than the bloodiness, um, this is obviously a very different story. So the movie kicks off with the voice of Candyman. Again, Tony Todd has that amazing, like, 
you know, deep baritone with a slight rasp. He's just so perfect for this horror villain. And it kicks off with him saying, They will say I have shed innocent blood, but what is blood for if not for shedding? With my hook for a hand, I'll split you from your groin to your gullet. So we've already established his intent right there in the beginning. <laughs> right, so after that fine intro by the Candyman himself, we are introduced to Helen and her friend Bernadette, who are doing this, this research paper for their thesis on urban legends. And this myth of Candyman leads them to find their way to Cabrini Green, which is a housing project in Chicago. And funny enough, it is actually a real neighborhood in Chicago, and they actually film parts of the movie there, which is pretty cool. Um, so they, in doing their research, they discover there was actually a murder in Cabrini Green of resident Ruthie Jean that's still unsolved and the locals believe it was Candyman. So of course this is this is great fodder for their research paper. Not that they actually do it very respectfully, but they kind of want to dig in and talk to people. So they they actually end up going down there. And she figures out Helen eventually figures out that the building that she lives in and the building in Cabrini Green that they were at are actually both housing projects. They were built the same way. It's just that the one Ruthie lives in um, they kind of upgraded it and then sold it as condos, whereas the one in the housing projects in Cabrini Green has just been falling apart all this time and not maintained. But both buildings are made on a similar floor plan. And one flaw in this floor plan is that between apartments, the bathroom mirror cabinets are connected. So there's no wall between those cabinets. So she tests, she sort of tests it out in like her own apartment. She pulls out her cabinet and then pushes in the cabinet of the apartment next to her, which is fortunately vacant, but they can of course look into that apartment. And you know, they, they had found out that in Ruthie Jean's apartment, the killer entered that same way. So there was this interesting parallel in the beginning they don't circle back to that, but that I had to bring it up because it reminds me of this crazy video that surfaced on TikTok earlier this year. You guys might have heard about it, but a woman in New York, she found a hole behind the mirror in her bathroom that led to this entire like hidden dilapidated apartment that is just totally abandoned and unfinished. And in the video, she actually, she grabbed a hammer and a flashlight and crawled in the hole and filmed the whole thing and put up videos on TikTok. So it's kind of crazy you can look it up and find it and it just totally made me think of that because it was almost like a real life sort of similar things and you know i'm not sure if she was brave or insane probably a little bit of both but <laughs> i would probably want to look too i mean my curiosity would definitely get the better of me and uh, override my better judgment <laughs> so yeah uh but yeah definitely check it out if that sounds interesting it's kind of crazy so moving on to the movie, um, when they are in Cabrini Green at this apartment complex, Helen befriends Ruthie Jean's neighbor, Anne-Marie, and her baby, Anthony. And they kind of play a key role in this story. So, you know, Anne-Marie had actually heard Ruthie screaming next door, and she called the police. She was trying to get help, but no one would come out because they're in the slums, basically. And it's just hard to get help. No one wants to go out there. Uh, so unfortunately, Ruthie Jean didn't, sorry, Ruthie did not get help in time. So, as it turns out, a local gang leader had, had killed her, and it was using the Candyman myth to keep everyone afraid. But at one point in the movie, he makes the mistake of attacking Helen, and she gets up and testifies against him, which is what finally gets him locked up. So, she figures the whole ordeal is over, and the Candyman, you know, turned out to be a real person and not a, a mythical ghost wielding a hook. But as the movie progresses we learn the origin stories of Candyman. So in 1890, 
He was the son of a slave who managed to free himself and grow wealthy, making this equipment for shoe manufacturing. And so he got to go to fine schools and he became this brilliant and successful artist. He was eventually commissioned by a wealthy, I believe, slave owner to paint his beautiful daughter and they fall in love and she gets pregnant. So the father, um, being a wealthy white man, exact revenge at this time period that was considered unacceptable. So he gets back at Candyman, who unfortunately is a real name we don't learn, but he hires thugs to torture and kill him. So what they do is they saw off his hand and then they break apart a beehive and cover him in the honeycomb, which the bees attack him and sting him to death. And then they burn him on a pyre and spread his ashes over what eventually becomes Cabrini Green. So that is why he haunts Cabrini Green. Now, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but I want you to, to get enough to know kind of what the movie's about in case you don't get to watch it before you see the new one. But as, time, as the movie goes on, Helen starts to see and experience sort of interactions and visions with Candyman. He's attempting to lure her in. He keeps telling her to be my victim. He, uh, but almost in, a, in this like seductive way. It's, it's, it's bizarre, but it's, you know, it's kind of what makes an interesting movie. So along the way, he kills quite a few people and she gets blamed for it. So it seems like due to the psychic connection between them, Helen, basically when he kind of comes around, she gets like hypnotized and she can't move. She can barely talk. And so she can't stop him or do anything for murdering these people. And when someone shows up, it's like she's covered in blood and holding a knife and there's a dead body. So they assume it's her. And so she kind of gets pegged for this. Now, interesting side note I learned. During the film, the director actually had the actress, Virginia Madsen. He had her hypnotized for real. So a lot of those scenes, she's not acting. She really is hypnotized. But according to her in an interview, she was saying, you know, it's it was really a sort of a disconcerting experience because her body was kind of limp and she was super fuzzy in the head and she did not like it. So eventually... Um, you know, I, I think because she was kind of struggling with it, they, they resorted to this. But at some point, they stopped doing it, and she was able to, to act that part. Um, but, yeah, interesting. So when you're watching those scenes, just remember that for a lot of them, she's actually hypnotized, which is which is crazy. So there's also a cool, like, it's a cool scary bathroom scare, a crazy bathroom scare scene where she's um, she's leading up to it. She's flipping through these photos. She has them on a projector, and she finally sees proof that this is not just a figment of her imagination. She, one of the photos at Cabrini Green she took in this empty apartment, she took a photo in the mirror of herself, and as she zooms in, she sees the background, she sees Candyman behind her, and that's like her confirmation. So for some reason, she decides to go into her own bathroom in her apartment. This is like she's looking at these slides, she goes into the bathroom to see if he'll show up, if she can see in the mirror, and then his hand just like bursts out of the bathroom mirror at her. Now in real life, in that movie I was I was reading about this the director did not tell her the scare was coming he's just having her act out this scene and he convinced Tony Todd to do it this way and and Tony actually really didn't want he didn't want to actually scare the crap out of his uh co-star but he agreed to do it and so the scare there this is real she wasn't acting she she didn't know it was coming so she was actually like surprised and scared and um when he realized just how upset she was of course he felt really bad and apologized and she wasn't mad at him you know she He's, he's apparently a very sweet guy in, in, in real life. So she, you know, ultimately it was no harm, no foul. I think she maybe was a little annoyed with the director, Bernard. He might have been a little bit of a dick move on his part. But, you know, it did make for a great scene. So moving on with the story, we learn that Candyman, 
he wants Helen to sacrifice himself because he wants to kind of resurrect the fear around his legend. He's upset with Helen because basically when she revealed this gang leader was using his myth, it kind of caused people to not believe in him anymore. And that is what he kind of goes on quite a bit of how that keeps him alive. It's the writing on the wall. It's the fear that causes lovers to hold each other closer is what keeps him alive. And so he wants her to help him reinvigorate this myth and the fear around it so that people keep talking about him. And they also hint at one point that Helen might be the reincarnation of his lost love, but they don't really go too far into that. Um, I guess that's one thing I would have liked to have seen them confirm or deny or whatever, but they kind of just touch on it and that's it. So anyway, in his attempt to get Helen to agree to sacrifice herself, he kidnaps baby Anthony, which she gets blamed for. And he, so he uses the baby as bait to get Helen to agree to join him in this fabulous death so they can become, you know, she can become part of his legend so i'm not going to tell you exactly how it goes but i will tell you that in the end she does manage to save little baby anthony but she loses her life in the process and the ending is great <laughs> i i do like the way they kind of loop things back around in the end i'm not going to give away because i don't want to be full-on spoilers but i wanted you to know that baby anthony was rescued in case you don't get to watch this before you see the new candy man because the new candy man sequel follows the story of baby Anthony as a grown-up and he coincidentally becomes a brilliant artist himself. Now I'm sure, I don't know for sure, but I would think that that links back to him actually being kidnapped and spending time with Candyman, who was a brilliant artist as well. So it'll be interesting to see how they do that, but um, it follows him as an adult where he has left, um, becomes this brilliant artist, but comes back to Cabrini Green and it's very, very different. And he somehow, like the legend of Candyman returns to haunt him and I'm sure it gets bloody. <laughs> How could it not? So yeah, it looks really good. And if you want to check it out, there's a there's quite a few trailers on Netflix floating around for this for the new Candyman sequel. So uh, I suggest you check that out and definitely go see it when it comes out. Now, if you want more, there I found a lot of great stuff: Candyman trivia, facts, videos. There was quite a few behind the scenes you could find. Um, the ones, a few that I recommend, is the Candyman Kill Count by Dead Meat on YouTube. That was fun. I kind of like the Kill Count series that they have. It's a lot of fun, so check it out. And there is another video on YouTube by Cold Crash Pictures. It's called Candyman, Breaking All the Rules of Horror. And they get a lot of cool behind-the-scenes information. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I picked up, I got from that video. So that was fun as well. And there's another really cool article, Candyman, The Real Urban Legends That Inspired Tony Todd's Villain. And that's on ScreenRant.com. So couple of fun resources if you want to learn more about Candyman before you watch it or before you watch the new sequel so very excited for that you guys um and maybe I might review that I'm not sure I'm gonna review that on the podcast I think I might maybe do a quick little review on my Instagram or something maybe do a little video when I see that when it comes up but that's my show for today you guys I hope you enjoyed it and had fun I had a blast uh researching reading um, I just love doing this and I love hearing from you guys. So if you have, you know, again, if you have anything, any questions, comments, requests, you can send that to me at pinupandpoltergeist at gmail.com. And until next time, guys, stay sassy and stay spooky. Bye.